Hello, this is the One-Eyed Man. Uh, Mike Stopforth is no longer with us. I am a chatbot that's taken over from him and will hopefully do a better job than he did. Seems like everything is being taken over by chatbots these days. Um, I'm glad that you've checked in. My guest today is somebody who knows a lot about AI, but even more about the world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Simon Dingle was one of the earliest hosts on The One-Eyed Man. I think he was one of the first five episodes. He's a dear friend of mine. He's an extremely talented author. He's a phenomenal public speaker. But above all, he's an innovator. He's an entrepreneur. Uh, and his group of companies is heavily invested in advancing our understanding, our usage of the world of cryptocurrency. Um, uh, and in so doing, they've built a, a fund that uh, helps people invest in cryptocurrency. They've built a tool that enables people to manage their virtual assets and, and uh, essentially compare virtual assets. And then uh, the subject of today's show, the, the thing I was most interested in talking to uh, Simon about understanding better, to be honest with you, because it's a little bit um, above my pay grade, is something called ZOP which is a cryptocurrency, a stable coin, which is pegged to the price of the South African Rand. Why would we need a stable coin? What can it do? Well, that's what we find out in this conversation. I hope you'll enjoy uh, listening to Simon and I chatting as much as I enjoyed chatting to Simon. If you did enjoy the show, please feel free to pass it on uh, to your friends or network at the end. Um, and we did agree that we would give away five copies of Simon's amazing book Beyond Bitcoin to people who do share this episode online. So please, if you do enjoy it, share it on Instagram, share it on Twitter, share it on LinkedIn, tag myself or tag the one-eyed man, depending on what platform you're sharing it on, and you could stand a chance to win a copy of Simon's book Beyond Bitcoin. Now, over to the show. Enjoy. The real reason I wanted to chat to you was there, and kind of reflecting on last year, there mm. was a sense that it was a bit of a watershed year for, I mean, we're talking about big things happening in technology, but it felt like it was a big year in the in the universe, the, the sub-universe, the subculture of cryptocurrency. And it felt like my reading of it was, there was an element of reckoning um, and that mm -hmm. we, we had an opportunity to to be a little bit more circumspect about what had been created and the effectiveness of the things that had been created. And I'm curious about your perspective on that. And you know, the way I thought about it or the way I wanted to frame the first question was to say, if you, if you had to give a state of the crypto universe um, address uh, to a room of people right now who are you know, fairly diverse in nature, not necessarily people who dwell actively in that world how would you how would you talk about where that universe is at the moment how would you express its kind of health <laughs> or you know has it has nothing changed for you i mean where, where are you at so personally not much has changed but i think if you look at the progress of any trend or technology it's always interesting to apply models to it like dissipation of innovation curve which gets very detailed about an observation of how new ideas enter the world that is pretty well understood. Mm. And it's something that, you know, Nelson Mandela used to talk about very often. And it's summed up as first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then they win. <laughs> I mean, 
that kind of, if you think about it, is the dissipation of innovation curve summed up um, in a very simple way. And I actually gave a, a talk at CryptoFest, which is a kind of a, an informal cryptocurrency conference uh, in 2019, where I said, mm. I think that crypto has entered the fight us phase. Like we've been through them ignoring us, like 2009 mm. through 2015. And then we went through the laughing at us phase after that. And it, I said, I hope I'm wrong, but it feels like we're entering the fight us phase. And the reason I said that at the time is because American Express had just funded an advertising campaign uh, centered on Bitcoin's wastage of electricity, which of course mm, not. I remember us talking about that. Yeah, we might even have picked up on that. I think in the last uh, conversation, but yeah, that's right. And 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 I drew the 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 analogy. I think at the time in our last conversation to the Microsoft campaign against Linux, mm. but I think mm. unfortunately the last two and whatever, two or three years have been validation of that idea that we've entered the fight us phase. Mm. And the mm. cold face of, of any quarreling over ideas at the moment is social media. <laughs> and I think um, the railing of gamers against NFTs, for example, when they yeah. are weirdly fine with spending thousands of dollars on a line in a database at a company like Activision run by the biggest douchebags in the world, that's fine, but NFTs are evil that they, you know, that the kind of call it anti-crypto propaganda had managed to capture the minds of some of the sharpest young gaming journalists in the world, to mm. me was testament of the to the fact that we were very firmly we in the fighter stage. Middle. Yeah. And yeah. and the people we were fighting against were winning <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> so well, what, what evidence of that was there, Sir? I mean what what tangible evidence was there that that sentiment was validated? Look, a lot of it was anecdotal, but if you looked at sentiment analysis, and I did look at, at and you know, they're, they're obviously firms who track these things. Sentiment on crypto wasn't fantastic last year. <laughs> Let's just say that. A lot of good people had lost money. And, yeah. and as always, a lot of the criticism was valid. And then, of course, you know, it culminated in the explosion of FTX, which yeah. is of a case of fraud in the same way that Bernie Madoff was and had 100%. very little to do with crypto, but the newer a thing is, the more likely it is to be conflated with activities surrounding it. So why do you say it had very little to do with crypto? Well, if you look at other fraud cases like Steinel, for example, nobody conflated that with the furniture business and said, ah, you see, these couches are a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, I told you if you buy furniture, this is what will happen. Yes, um, yes. Okay, I see what you're but saying. But furniture was the mechanism that the powers that be at Steinhoff, you know, Marcus Uyster, et cetera, used to perpetrate their crime, uh, sure. purported sure. crime. But, you know, so crypto was the mechanism that FTX used to defraud people. That doesn't detract from the value that's provided by crypto. Mm -hmm. But because crypto is very new and shiny and, uh, you know, there's buzz around it, there was this conflation of crypto and FTX. So, and, and the you know, threat to the incumbent powers that be, right? So that yes. furniture is not that much of a threat uh, to the incumbent well, exactly. powers that be. Yeah, but if you look at what Sam Bankman-Fried is um, suspected of having done. Accused of, yeah. It's, this, it, it's the same that Bernie Madoff did and it's the same that Marcus Joester did. They claim to be selling something that they didn't have. Mm -hmm. They claim to be doing something with investors' money that they weren't doing. Mm -hmm. And that's just, you know, that's just pedestrian fraud. 
he didn't do anything sure. different to Bernie Madoff or Marcus Uyster, but because it's crypto, people somehow saw this as detracting from, you know, the, the, the efficacy industry. of the yeah okay yeah. Where he's just he's just a fraudster, and if crypto wasn't around, he probably would have found another mechanism for it. <laughs> um, no, I just wanted to circle back around to your original question around where we are in crypto. I think we're in a trough right now. These mm-hmm. things are cyclical. And I do feel a bit like I've, I've seen this before. Mm-hmm. FTX isn't the biggest crypto exchange that's ever gone under, proportionate to the market. So in dollar mm-hmm. terms, it might be the biggest, you know. But if I think back to the Mt. Gox um, situation in 2000, and I think it was around 13, I mean, Mt. Gox at the time was the biggest crypto exchange, predominantly mm-hmm. Bitcoin. And it, was, it, it had many chapters of problems, but it finally came down in flames, I think, around 2013. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Mt. Gox represented, I, you know, I'd be guessing, but I'd say at least 70, 80% of the market, whereas FTX sure. is you know, probably less than 2%. So in dollar terms, FTX was a massive event. But in terms of you know, uh, proportion, Mt. Gox was a much bigger event and it precipitated a similar sort of call it bear market for crypto where the mainstream lost interest and everybody wrote it off as a terrible idea and thought it was all over except it wasn't and that's very much what this moment in crypto feels like to me in the beginning of 2023. I mean could it be that that some of the more fly-by-night style either investors participants um, voices in the space are are shed <laughs> um, that some of the wheat and the chaff are, are removed from each other in, in this sort of moment. Mm. And is that maybe not a good thing in a way that um, uh, some of the more superficial layers are, are peeled back? Absolutely. This is my favorite time to be, to be involved in, in, in the industry. You know, everybody has probably heard the term huddle where mm-hmm. <laughs> you're just gathering crypto assets and holding them. I think it's been extended to other asset classes too. But, um, you know, these bear markets are often referred to as biddle time. <laughs> it's like, you know, now it's time to build. And, um, you know, as somebody who's active in the industry, I enjoy these periods because it's much easier to build when there's less hype and freneticism. I don't know if that's a word, but it should be in the market. Because when, you know, everybody's talking about crypto around the bry and your doors being beaten down for people wanting you to speak at their conference or take their money for X, Y, and Z, you get lost in the noise and you get a lot of bad actors that suck some of the air out of the room um, Mm -hmm. and distract investors, etc. And as you alluded to, what's happened through the whole FTX debacle, etc., is a lot of bad actors get flushed out of the system, Mm. but also that mainstream attention turns elsewhere. And you get some quiet time <laughs> to reflect and regather yourself <laughs> and prepare for, yeah. the next, prepare for the next wave. So you're right. It's incredibly healthy. And, you know, having been through three or four of these cycles in crypto since 2010, I actually now know that this is, this is the best time to be in it. Firstly, because, you know, you're in it for the right reason. If you're still there yeah. when everybody else has left the party, you must really love the music. Um, <laughs> And uh, and it and you've got the time and space to you know gather yourself and figure out what really matters about what you're doing now because a lot of things that don't matter get amplified when there's a lot of hype and and mainstream attention. So so yes, incredibly healthy. 
So to extend your analogy, you said, you know, you must really love the music. You do really love the music. You understand the music well. Uh, you DJ <laughs> some of the music. <laughs> um, you're, you're, you mentioned, you're, you know, you're very active in the space. For people that don't uh, have a good idea, Simon, of what you're busy with, what, what are the various projects that, you, that you're invested in? And, you know, if you could give us a bit of a sense of, of the, the portfolio of companies and products that you're, you're building, that would be Awesome. Great. So, so my company is called Invest. Um, we're predominantly in South Africa and the UK, but we have tendrils into other markets. And in our portfolio are various, you know, fintech projects. Some of which are in crypto, and some of which aren't. Um, but mm-hmm. crypto is is very much a focus. So, the thing I'm spending most of my time on at the moment is the Zarp stablecoin which mm-hmm. is a stablecoin cryptocurrency pegged to the price of the South African rand. And we can get into more about what that means if there's an interest. We're um, going to have to. We also we want to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> cool. We've also got an investment um, platform called Venox, which provides managed portfolios for digital asset investors. That's been doing really well during the slump in the market because, of course, smart investors, which our clients are, know when is a good time to buy. Not investment mm-hmm. advice, but that's just the reality. Uh, we also have a company called Lettuce, which develops a portfolio management application, but is also a JV vehicle for some other propositions we're preparing with partners. Um, and then we've got one or two uh, other holdings uh, in companies that we have more distance from, but that's us in a nutshell. Awesome. Essentially, what we do is we bridge finance and t- technology. So fintech is a bit of a buzzword. Um which is sometimes a swear word, but that's predominantly what we do. So the primary objective of today's conversation was really to talk about ZARP or to understand ZARP a little bit better. Um, ZARP mm. has met the public eye for the first time officially. I mean, it's been in the works for some time, but uh, as I understand it, has, has has been more officially launched and now sits comfortably on the, the, the Chainix uh, exchange and is accessible to the, the general public. But how, how do you explain uh, what a stable coin is? It's hard enough sometimes to understand just what a <laughs> cryptocurrency is. But uh, how, would you, how do you explain what a stable coin is? And why would you choose to peg it to the South African Rand as an example? Right. So stable coins are cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum or Solana or, you know, whatever. But unlike uh, those digital assets where the price is volatile and, you know, can fluctuate quite wildly from one day to the next, a stable coin's price is pegged to a real world asset, um, mm-hmm. typically currencies like the dollar or the rand. Um, so the leading stable coin project in the world is USDC, which is pegged to the price of the US dollar, mm-hmm. uh, which basically means that one USDC token will always or should always have the value of one dollar. The big question is how? How does it have that peg and why is it worth $1? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are various strategies that can be employed to do that. The only one that really matters to our mind is that you have actual dollars or actual rands somewhere that represent that token on the blockchain. And why would you want to do that? Well, because we believe that decentralized cryptocurrencies are the future of finance and if we're going to have our existing real-world currencies or fiat currencies like the Rand and the dollar, they need a representation in these protocols. So 
SARP is a way of upgrading the RAND to make it compatible with the world of decentralized finance, if you will. So you can now do things with RAND value that you wouldn't be able to do with the RAND itself. Okay. I mean, that sounds like a massive undertaking because immediately my compliance and regulatory flags go up. Is that something you had to do in partnership with the Reserve Bank? Did you have to get approvals or were you able to create it uh, completely independently mm. uh, in the hope, I guess, of course, that these two um, assets begin to, to draw closer together in time and with critical mass? Yeah, look, regulation's critical. So the first thing we did was embark on a, a research project to make sure that we weren't contravening any regulation. Fortunately, there was a lot of prior art. So there were stable coins already like USDT and USDC that had, you know, uh, jumped through the regulatory hoops internationally. But we can't just assume that because something is compliant in the US market that it'll hold water in South Africa. So we worked with local legal partners. They identified the Banks Act as the most important piece of legislation that we need to make sure that we weren't contravening and they were satisfied that we weren't. So they provided a legal opinion for that. But ZARP was really born in the era of regulation where digital assets and cryptocurrency were in a gray area, um, if you will. There wasn't any specific legislation for them in South Africa, which meant that you were allowed to do it, of course, um, within the parameters of existing laws. But you didn't have to comply with specific uh, regulation from, for example, the the Financial Services Conduct Authority or FISCA um, Mm. or the FIC, etc., Uh, That has changed drastically because South Africa is one of the countries in the world now that has declared digital assets to be um, essentially financial instruments. So now Mm -hmm. they do fall under the coverage of the FSCA, for example, or whatever other financial regulator would uh, be more relevant to whatever you're doing with digital assets. So from a ZAR perspective, that means that... um, when the window for registration opens with the FSCA in June, we'll have to register as a financial services provider and we'll have to you know, make sure that we are complying with whatever regulation is, is relevant to what we're doing. Um, we have had conversations with the Reserve Bank. I think the important thing to realize about ZARP is that it's not a currency. It's a mm-hmm. token that represents a currency. Um, analogies are dangerous, but perhaps a useful one is... Um, gift vouchers (laughs) so if you go and get a gift voucher for a shopping mall it has a rand value that it represents but it's not rand itself you can go and exchange it for you know an item at a store inside that mall but the 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 voucher itself is is not money if that makes sense so zarp itself doesn't claim to be a currency it claims to represent a currency and the currency itself is sitting in a a bank account uh, in our treasury which um we recently announced is being managed by Old Mutual Wealth. So we've got the oldest trust provider in the country that's looking after our treasury and making sure that those rands are kept safe. So that whenever a ZARP is, you know, transferred back into rand or, or exchanged for a rand, that we have at least as many rand in the bank as there are ZARP tokens in the wild. Okay. What would happen if the demand for ZARP tokens exceeded the number of actual rands you had in trust? Well, in order for New Zarp to enter the market, we actually have to have RAND in the account first, and then we'll mint new tokens that represent those RANDs. So somebody would essentially be exchanging RAND for Zarp at that point. So we should never have less RAND in the bank than there are Zarp in the wild. Um, There will be brief periods of time where, for example, 
we've what we refer to as burn tokens. So somebody's exchanged Zarp for RAND with us, uh, and we haven't burned the tokens yet, but we've given them the RAND. Um, the tokens are in our control, so it's it's not a big issue from an auditing perspective. But ideally, that should never be, you know, an extended period of time before we burn the tokens and adjust the balances back down. So how do you how do you dream that Zarp might be used in future? Uh, assuming we get the critical mass that you want, and assuming there are no regulatory or compliance hiccups in the process of growth and expansion, mm. how do you, how do you fantasize that Zarp might be adopted? Uh, and used in, I want to say the real world, as if there is such a thing. But you know what I mean, um, mm. in practicality. Well, that's that's the exciting part about it, Mike, because really what, what cryptocurrency broadly introduces to the world of money is a protocol for value. And it means that mm. for the first time, money is programmable, which was never true before. Um, mm. So if we zoom all the way out, the reason I got so excited about digital assets, starting with Bitcoin in the beginning, was this idea of a value protocol for the internet. Um, so we all know how disruptive the internet has been, of course. <laughs> and, you know, w- when it first kind of became a thing, it was just TCP IP. It was just a protocol for sending packets or, of information around. But very soon after that, people started creating specific protocols for use cases. So, of course, uh, probably the most important one was HTTP or Hypertext Transport Protocol, which enabled us to create content of the internet and gave birth to the World Wide Web. And just that single protocol was massively disruptive to the world of content. So we saw what happened to newspapers as a result, for example. Um, But then we got other protocols. We got protocols for telephony and things like Skype. And what we're doing right now, recording this conversation on the internet, became possible, which was massively disruptive, again, for telecoms providers. Um, Video protocols, which started disrupting traditional television, etc. But one of the protocols that I think to a lot of computer scientists was very late to the party and, and mysteriously so was a protocol for value or for money to, mm. to kind of transfer, you know, that kind of information over the internet. And Bitcoin really introduced it in a very compelling way. Before then, of course, we had transactions over the internet, but they weren't using an internet protocol. We were shoehorning uh, technologies like credit cards, which were designed in the 1950s, into the internet, and often with disastrous consequences. I mean, credit card fraud took on a whole new dimension with the the internet. Yes, Um, yes. So so if we bring this back to Zarp, we've now got these protocols for money and for value transfer on the internet. They aren't going to go away. To my mind, that means that the disruption that we've seen in other industries like newspapers as a result of having specific open internet protocols for them are now arriving in the financial industry. And what does that mean? Well, it means that anything you could do with finance before, you can now do in a decentralized online way, faster, more efficiently, less hops in the process, all of that good stuff, which is very well understood. But also a whole new world of opportunities being opened up that nobody can really uh, preempt. So already we're seeing uh, applications using Zarp for payments, for example. Uh, they're decentralized protocols where you can swap Zarp for other assets. So you can you know, use it to invest in digital assets in a protocol like Uniswap, for example. Um, we're hoping that there'll be some lending protocols soon that'll incorporate Zarp. But the, the beautiful thing about creating something like Zarp is that it, you know it's really up to the ecosystem and community of developers and users to decide what they want to do with it. Um, yeah. and, and that's been one of the most fulfilling things for me is just putting it out into the world and then meeting all these people. You know, I thought I was pretty well connected in the industry, but so many new startups and engineers and, and you know, people have, have come to Zarp 
just because they were looking for a rand stablecoin in whatever project they were building and yeah so so it's it's really about watching the whole ecosystem emerge but anything that cryptocurrency is good for um zarp is good for if you you know bring in that dimension of 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 sort of rand value that backs it so you know if if we look at some of the potential in the future if you're a multinational company that's that's settling in multiple currencies right now you're confined to banking hours um, mm-hmm. which optimistically is between eight and four o'clock on weekdays. Your settlements take, uh, you know, sometimes days to clear. The fee structure is inefficient and manual processes are almost always required to, to you know, uh, execute on them. Whereas with programmable money, you can settle 24-7 over weekends outside of banking hours for lower fees It'll settle in seconds depending which blockchain you're on and you can program it so you can automate a lot of settlement function that before would have required somebody sitting in a chair in front of a computer to do. So the efficiencies are kind of self-evident and now it's just really about watching what people want to do with this technology. Yeah, we were chatting uh, before the recording started about um, chat GPT um, and how it's interesting how different people use that tool provided they've got access to it. And we were discussing how often we use it in the same way that we've learned to use Google because that's the way we speak to computers (laughs) or at least Mm. the way we've been trained to. And there's a way that we've been trained, I guess, to think about finance and, and about money because that's been the operating system that has been prevalent in our entire lives. And you could argue generations now worth of thinking about money. And what I'm hearing you say, if I'm not entirely incorrect, is that this offers us similarly an opportunity to rethink the way we think about how we use money or what we might use money for, which which is, is quite difficult to, to do because you know, most people will say, okay, but can I use it to get groceries from pick and pay? Because that's, what I use money for now. I go and mm. I get the thing and then I, I pay. And the, you know. But I guess what I'm hearing you say is that, but we can completely rethink all of that. Um, uh, and, and that's the part that's quite difficult to imagine if you're not immersed in the world uh, currently, um, currency. Um, <laughs> so the question I wanted to ask you is, what are some of the most interesting use cases of you know, comparable stable coins? You spoke about the, the, the two that are pegged against the US dollar. What are some of the use cases that get you really excited at the moment and that you would love to see emulated uh, in our or other markets for that matter? I, I suppose you can throw the blanket of financial inclusion over all of them because that's really mm-hmm. what, what excites me. So these use cases aren't sort of profound in terms of innovation but they're incredibly meaningful in terms of lives changed if you will Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the most obvious ones is remittances so you know people who come from developing markets who are forced for whatever reason to go and find jobs overseas and typically want to send money back home to their family those are people that were just fleeced by the traditional financial system you know fees could extend up to 40 percent for a remittance cross-border where you know they would put hundred dollars in one side and their family back home would would receive like you know sixty dollars of value on the other side, yeah, so just yeah. completely exorbitant, completely abusive, yeah. very exclusionary system. Whereas with stable coins, you can send somebody a hundred USDC over the Ethereum network, pay your gas fees in Ethereum of you know whatever cents and dollars it is, uh, and they'll they'll get a hundred USDC on the other side. 
Now we can get into a discussion about gas fees on Ethereum, which are which are high, but you know you could use another chain to transfer USDC as well. My point is that you've now got cross-border remittances that whereas before they would take days can now happen in seconds, whereas before they would cost a very large percentage of the, the, the total transaction now cost fractions of a cent depending on what chain you're using. Um, so, so that to me, you know, that doesn't sound very exciting to somebody in a developed country who lives in a big city and has only first world problems, but that that's massive if you think about um, global remittance corridors and what it means for for efficiencies for for people in those markets. So that's pretty exciting to me. But then also just watching the rise of DeFi and the things that are possible in decentralized finance. You know, f- for example, the the loan mode. Of, uh, protocols and, and markets that have emerged in decentralized finance, things like Compound and Aave, where if you've got a digital asset like Bitcoin or Ethereum, you can go and provide it as collateral into these markets and take out a loan in a stable coin against those assets. And then, you know, go and do whatever you needed to do with the money, but still have that asset sitting in the protocol with rights to it. Um, and the ability to come back later and go, well, you know, the price of Ethereum has dropped, for example. I get to just walk away from the loan then and whoever I loan the Ethereum to will keep my collateral. So they're happy, I'm happy, <laughs> presumably. But if the value's gone up and Ethereum's doubled, I get to buy it back at the price that I locked it into the loan protocol for. So that's a very fair way of, of doing loans. It's a very transparent way of doing loans. Um, and nothing can be hidden in these systems. They're completely transparent. So you, know, you look at FTX collapsing, for example, that's because they had an opaque balance sheet that nobody could go and query and they were able to hide things on it. Exactly zero DeFi protocols went down during the collapse of FTX because their balance sheets are not opaque. They're transparent. Anybody can go and make sure that they actually have the assets represented on chain that they purport to have in the protocol. So it just introduces a level of transparency and fairness to sort of financial instruments that aren't necessarily new conceptually, um, but are being reinvented in a more in a fairer, more inclusive, uh, and a more transparent way. And then it's it's really about acknowledging that we don't know what the future will bring. You know, I, you and I both remember when the iPhone was introduced. Um, in fact, I remember you and I having a conversation about it not long after the fact. And it was this amazing new technology. And but the only applications we could think of were ones that existed already. So, yeah, is it yeah. better than a Nokia at making phone calls? Not really. Please. But it's got internet access. My Nokia doesn't, so that's useful. So what can I do yeah. with that? But if you look at all of the applications we have for smartphones now, you know, call it 15, 17 years after the fact, um, like very few of those were predicted. I don't think sure. many of us predicted Instagram. The idea of a camera in your pocket, like sure, phones back then had cameras, but I didn't really think we didn't really think it would, you know, replace all of the other cameras in our lives. Um, mm. Things like Google Maps and Waze and Uber and you know the 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 multitude of ways that that smartphones have have really transformed our lives. We kind of had to figure out because now we had this new technology, um, yeah. and you know, like what can we do with it? And I think that's really where crypto is at right now. We've got a lot of really interesting things like NFTs and soulbound tokens, and you know, all of these DeFi protocols. But we're very much at that Cambrian stage still of uh, figuring out where the value is. And sure, doing all the things we used to do with money before and doing them better, faster, more transparently, more efficiently, but really also acknowledging that we're now entering a period of innovation where nobody can really predict what we're going to do with these new technologies because we now have a set of superpowers that we've never had before. Mm. 
Yeah, so I mean, there's the obsession over, I can't wait to see crypto reach the critical mass where we use crypto to do the things that we currently use traditional fiat currency for. That's maybe a very limited or very one-dimensional, that, that would be great for, for a number of reasons, but that's not the whole story. And, and, and yeah. maybe that's where some people are getting stuck thinking about it. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at NFTs, for example, it's a, it's a really compelling technology. And I think most people think of NFTs as, as being centered on the art world, whereas, mm. you know, representing ownership of art is arguably the least interesting thing being done with NFTs. Um, mm. For example, I can go and provide liquidity into a protocol like Uniswap, which basically means I'm taking my digital assets I own, which could be ZARP or Ethereum, etc., and providing them for other people to trade against, and I'll earn a fee from that. But when I go and lock in that position on this protocol, I get issued an NFT that represents it. Gotcha. So, you know, as, as, as a mechanism for representing ownership of something unique, NFTs are massively powerful. And the implications, if, if they reach widespread adoption, are, are quite large as well. So if you look at ticketing, for example, um, you know, the, this is a world that's plagued by forgery at the moment, whereas you could drive forgery out of the ticketing industry tomorrow if everybody adopted NFTs as an alternative. So it's a massively powerful, massively compelling technology. But right now, we are still experimenting with it. It's kind of obvious that you can now represent ownership of digital art, which I think is is useful. And it's interesting watching the deliberation around it. Somehow people think that digital mediums are different from physical mediums and that because you can right click and copy something, it's somehow difficult than putting it through a photo, different from putting it through a color photocopier. I mean, mm, you know, mm. you're doing the exact same thing just with less friction. It's not devaluing <laughs> the art. Uh, anyway without getting into the moronity that arises from these discussions. My point is it's, you know, as you were saying, it's, it's early days and you can kind of see where things are going, but, but I don't think we fully understand, uh, you know, where this is going to take us. So, I mean, I, I would like to believe that I'm not the most technologically um, handicapped uh, person you've had a conversation with. I'm definitely not on the upper end of the um, technological genius scale, but I imagine that there are a lot of people who are listening to some of the things that we're saying and talking about now and feeling very discombobulated or um, uh, confused or uncomfortable, but, but have a deep willingness to find out more. Like, you know, mm. what, what are some of the resources that you think are most interesting in terms of helping people wade through the complexity or the uncertainty of uh, decentralized finance or cryptocurrency or NFTs or whatever it might be? What are the sort of gateway um, uh, resources that can get me closer to an understanding or, or just thinking differently can challenge my preconceived uh, embedded opinions about how money and finance should and do work. Um, what are some of the things that you are, think are quite useful uh, mm -hmm. in that space? Before I answer the question, I'd, I'd first say that I'd question whether or not they're really want to understand it because I think what's more important sure. is focusing on the application. You know, if we got into a really sophisticated discussion of how the Silk Codec works that makes Skype possible, you know, firstly, I wouldn't be able to have the discussion because I don't mm -hmm. understand how it works. Sure. But supposing I was, you know, most of our, most of your, your viewers or listeners would be completely confused. Like, you know, yeah. because we, yeah. it would get very technical very quickly. But none of that yeah. matters. What All they need to know about Skype is that they can have a conversation with a friend or family member on the other side of the planet and see them or, gotcha. and hear them in real time. Like the value proposition is immediate. And so 
like to me it's endlessly fascinating to talk about consensus mechanisms and nakamoto coefficients and merkle trees and how blockchains work because i'm a freaking nerd who's interested in this stuff but mm. i think if you can't bring it home for people and explain to them what they can do with this stuff like you can buy groceries at pick and pay with bitcoin okay is that better than buying it with rand maybe not at the moment because the price is volatile all right, let's mm. talk about another use case. You can be from Zimbabwe walking in South Africa and you can send somebody money back home. It'll arrive in seconds. It'll cost a few cents to send to them. Okay, now there's an application I can get excited about, for example, mm. collateralized mm. loans, you know, all the other, the other DeFi apps. But if somebody wants to dig a little bit deeper, I'm going to be biased and, and obviously talk about my own books. The first one I wrote was in Math We Trust, which is a very high level look at the rise of cryptocurrency. To be honest, I feel that book is a little bit dated now. It came out in 2018. Um, but more recently, um, Stephen Boyke Sidley and I put out a book last year called Beyond Bitcoin, which is about decentralized finance. Um, so if you want to understand more about DeFi um, and the use cases that exist for digital assets beyond Bitcoin, um, then, then I'd recommend that book. We've really tried to write it from the non-technical sort of angle. Um, and then there, there's so many great uh, resources online. For somebody who wants to dive into the industry more and get the latest news, etc., cetera, uh, Laura Shin does a fantastic podcast. She's an American journalist called Unchained, which I can highly recommend. There's a computer scientist and, and, and Bitcoin software engineer I've been following for many years named Jamison Lopp. Um, mm -hmm. And if you go to his website, which is lopp.net, lopp with two P's, so L-O-P-P.net, he's got a resources section, um, which he keeps relevant with the latest YouTube videos and explainers. And, and then there's also a documentary on uh, Amazon Prime that I was featured in recently called um, uh, Banking, in Ar Banking on Africa. Sure, I should yeah. know the name I of this. That, <laughs> um, but it's a very short documentary, which just gives you a taste of some of the use cases that have emerged for digital assets in Africa, um, which is quite exciting as well. So yeah, those are some of the resources, but uh, Twitter and Google are your friends and there's, there's no end of, of, um, of resources online. Um, crypto having just come through somewhat of a hype period. What I will say though, is that one has to be very careful of scams because unfortunately, with anything that's new and hot, um, the scamsters are going to uh, jump onto it and try and get money from you. So ignore anybody asking you to do something um, and focus on the people offering you free content and then you're probably headed in the right direction. Still not quite as bad as email. Way more scam happens using email than crypto. But, uh, <laughs> that is <yeah>. true, yes. <laughs> Sometimes they use email. Okay, so, so that's amazing and thank you for those resources. So we'll pop those in, in the show notes and, and what I think I'd love to do is, is get a couple copies of Beyond Bitcoin from you and maybe we can do them as a giveaway uh, around the show, which would be awesome. So I'll, I'll make a plan to do that with you. Um, just getting back to Zarp and, and we can we can wrap up on that because I know I know you're busy. For people who want to experiment with Zarp or want to find out more, we mentioned very briefly earlier on it's now listed on, on Chainx. Is that right? Am I pronouncing that? Yeah, right? so I'm pronouncing that so right. yeah, so there are two centralized exchanges that currently the Zarp. The one is Ovex, O V E X dot I O mm -hmm. is their website. The other one is Chainx also dot IO, so so chain and then ex.io or you can get hold of zarp on decentralized uh, exchanges uniswap being the most uh, or the most reliable place to get it awesome 
Um, so people can go along and check that and we'll link to those as well. So they have uh, an opportunity to explore more. Simon, thank you. Really appreciate your time and your energy again. You're my only ever two-time guest on the shows because you have twice the wisdom that most people oh, do. Oh, really? It's really good to it, – that's an objective fact, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, well, I'm honored yeah, to be the only two-time guest on the show. I didn't, I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> Uh, I'm just grateful that you're very patient, I guess, with me and with other people who are curious and sometimes confused, but desperately keen to understand and participate and learn more um, so that we are not completely left behind uh, as as the world evolves around us. But uh, yeah, looking forward to catching up with you soon. And thanks again for your time and energy, my friend. Pleasure. Thank you, Mike. It's always great chatting. Cool. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com Click on the podcast link and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.